Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Today is January 16th, Martin Luther King Jr. Day in the United States. Jaws of Justice has a very special broadcast planned. Host Elise Max will speak with Leonard Rahim Taylor, currently an inmate of the Missouri Department of Corrections. Rahim Taylor was convicted for the murder of Angela Rowe and her three children in St. Louis in 2004. Taylor has always denied the murders, and his conviction was based in large part on false testimonial evidence along with bias of prosecution. Rahim Taylor is scheduled for execution in Missouri on February 7, 2023. Elise Max, who is director of Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty, will speak to Rahim. Discussion will center on the illogic of capital punishment, and particularly when an innocent person has been convicted and sentenced to death. The second part of our hour will discuss the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. King preached a philosophy that had no room for capital retribution. He said, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence. And toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. Let's have love multiply love. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now to our show. We open with Elise Max and Raheem Taylor. Good morning, Kansas City. Thank you so much for tuning in today on KKFI 90.1 FM. I'm very excited for today's show. We will be talking with Leonard Rahim Taylor, live from Potosi Correctional Center. Leonard was convicted on four counts of first-degree murder charges with four sentences of death for the 2004 murders of Angela Rowe and her three children in Jennings, Missouri, a crime he has maintained he did not commit. Rahim is scheduled to be executed February 7th at 6 p.m. in Bonterre, Missouri, and attorneys are working overtime and have asked St. Louis County Prosecutor Wesley Bell to call for a hearing to review the innocence claim. Today, we are excited to have Rahim with us by phone to tell us about his story. Rahim, are you with us today? Yes, I'm here. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for calling in today. Um, I want to jump right in because your story is made for a major motion picture, and we only have about 23 minutes this morning. Um, So if you will, will you kind of just kick off and tell me a little bit about where you were in life in 2004, and who was Angela Rowe to you? Well, Angela Rowe was a um, girlfriend of mine in 2004. Um, We had met years prior to that um we had a real close relationship uh, although i was i was married had children um at home in california where i live with my um, wife and children there um during the time i traveled a lot um i had a clothing business down in kentucky madisonville kentucky um i was off into the entertainment business i had a little record, independent record label called Boss of the Game Entertainment. 
Um, so I traveled a lot, you know, doing concerts and, and so forth and so on. Um, but Angela and the children, um, they were a, a big factor in my life. Um, we had a great relationship. I loved her, loved the children, treated them like they were my own. You know, we had no problems with one another. Um, we didn't have a contentious relationship or anything like that. Um, that was one of the major things in the case. There was never even a motive um, established or even created uh, um, for murders, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so they didn't have a motive. And in reviewing the case, it looks like the really only thing that they had to even arrest you on was a coerced confession from your brother. Um, do you want to talk a little bit? Okay, so I guess I need to back up a little bit. And let's talk about you were with Angela. It was 2004. You were spending th- uh, Thanksgiving together. And one thing that advocates and attorneys are uplifting about your case is that you had an airtight alibi. You weren't even in Missouri at the time of the crime. So talk talk to me a little bit about that timeline um, from when you were with Angela and when you left town and how that all kind of played out. Sure. Um, 2004, um, I was with Angela and the children during Thanksgiving holiday, um, which was the 25th. That was November the 25th, that Thursday. Uh, November the 26th, I left St. Louis um, going to California. Um, I have a daughter named um, Deja Taylor. Um, She was born in 1991. I had she was thirteen years old at the time. I'd never seen her in, in, in all of her life. You know, I've been searching for her and searching for her for years. Um, every chance I could get, I would just miss it. Where they was last living there, they was at one time they was in Tacoma, Washington, and being pulled in Oregon, and then um, back in California, up in the Oakland area, and so forth. And so on. I had recently got information that they were staying in the Los Angeles area, and I got the address and everything, and I was excited about going to California to meet her for the first time in, in her life and first time in my life as well. And um, so I left St. Louis, um, traveling to California. I, I reached California on the 26th of November, which was that Friday. Um, and I went out to California. I met with her, seen her, we laughed, we talked. Um, I had told Angela prior to leaving that I was going to meet my mother and everything, and she was excited about it, because we had talked about that all the time, you know. And um, I called back to the house and let Deja talk to Angela, because I wanted her to meet her, you know, hey, this is somebody's in my life. Uh, when you come to St. Louis, you know, you'll be staying with us, you know, whenever you visit and so forth and so on. So she talked to Angela, and Angela let her talk to her. Alexis, and they talked for a minute and everything. Um, after that, um, Angela told her, um, hey, I'm looking forward to meeting you. You know, you're welcome here anytime. And, you know, the conversation ended, you know. Um, after that, um, I left my daughter. I went on about my business. Um, I went down south. I had, like I said, I had a clothing business down there in Nashville, Kentucky. So I went down there um, to visit, check on things down there, check with a, a, a friend of mine in West Point, Georgia, where we had set up a, a, a concert. Like I said, I had an independent little record label and everything. We were doing concerts down south, you know, working at what they call the Chitlin Circuit. 
and so we working working down through there. Uh, we had set up a concert down in um, West Point, Georgia, Lynette, Alabama. They right there together. The railroad track is the only thing that separates the two, you know, towns, two states, and everything. Uh, so we went and went there first. Um, got with some friends and everything. Checked out the venue down there. Left there. Went to Kentucky, um, which subsequently is where. The major K squad that came down um, to Kentucky questioned me. They uh, arrested me, took me to an interrogation room, and everything started questioning about the murders and, and so forth and so on. And I'm like, hold on, wait a minute. You know, uh, they pride and pride. So at that particular time, I seen how severe the whole situation was. So I just basically told myself, well, you know, my attorney's name is Joseph Holman. Any question you got for me, just refer him to him. And they got mad that I wouldn't answer any questions, um, start threatening me and, and so forth and so on. And, you know, it would, from then on, the nightmare began, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I just want to be clear. So you left, so you had Thanksgiving together November 25th. The 26th is when mm-hmm. you left town, you went, you visited your daughter, you met for the first time. Um, there's some uh, affidavits that were submitted from your daughter that verify that she talked to Angela at that time. Additionally, in the time between the 27th and 28th, a couple other people saw Angela and the kids alive at that time as well, correct? That is correct. Okay. Her family members. Um, 27 and 28, um, her sister, Jawan Rowe, um, borrowed $50 from her on the 27th. Jawan Rowe didn't say she talked to her over the phone on the 27th. She said she personally seen her sister in person and received $50 from her. After that, she spoke to her again on the 28th. Not only did her sister, Jawan Rowe, speak to her on the 28th and see her on the 27th, but the children, they were not my biological children. So their biological aunties on the father's side, Sherry Conley and Beverly Conley, both of them spoke with the children on the 27th and the 28th that weekend. Everybody looked at the timeline as being right after Thanksgiving. You know, this is a holiday, major holiday, Thanksgiving. Everybody can remember Thanksgiving and what they did on Thanksgiving, just like you know, New Year just passed and Christmas passed. If something was to happen right now, we would gauge it by it's the New Year, you know, just coming in. Right. So they said that they had spoke with the children. They spoke with Angela on the 27th, 28th. Elmer Massey, which was one of the neighbors, um, his daughter played with the children on that weekend. He likewise stated the same thing. Um, all of this information, they questioned them right after they found them um, deceased in the house and everything. Um, everybody went to the Jennings Police Station. It was fresh in their mind. Oh, yeah, we just talked to them. Uh, they, they found them um, dead on the 3rd of December. And so we just talked to them on last weekend, on the 27th, 28th. Everybody that came in said the same thing over and over. You've got eight people. You've got El Massey. You got Beverly Conley, Sherry Conley, Jawan Rowe. Um, you got uh, uh, Kathy um, Barnes, which was a friend who had um, spoke with Angela on the, on, uh, around that time as well. Um, I mean, everybody's testimony, everybody's statement, doing deposition, doing the uh, interviews when they first found them dead and everything, it was the same. All the way up until it gets to trial. When it comes to trial, and they come to trial and make the 
statement and, and, and testimony. Now all of a sudden, oh, well, no, maybe it was the weekend before that. So when everybody starts changing their statements and everything, my attorney's question say, hold on. Initially, you said it was the 27th and 28th of November that you last spoke with or seen them. That's correct? Yes. What happened here? Why is it that now you come to court and you... And all of them said the same thing. Well, when we talked to the prosecutor, he called us in his office last week, and he told us uh, it couldn't have been that. The prosecutor can't tell you when the last time you spoke with your loved ones. The prosecutor can't tell you when the last time you've seen a person. So he got them to change their statement. Basically, in essence, what he told them, we believe this guy committed these murders just off of our belief. You go in there and tell the truth, and say that you spoke with your loved ones on the 27th and 28th, then he's not going to be convicted of this. We want to convict him of this, so we need you to change your statement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's part of, uh, my understanding is that's part of what the attorneys are asking for Wesley Bell to look through. Are those old notes, any kind of records from the original trial that might um, have been taken during those depositions, instructions to, you know, change statements. And while, you know, neighbors, family members, individuals, that that's one thing. But I think the thing that sticks out to me a lot is that the medical examiner, the coroner statement, that when they found the family on December 3rd, they were um, reported to be in rigor mortis, which is a 24, 36 hour experience for a body. And all the way up, and correct me if I'm wrong, but all the way up to the day of trial, they believe they had that coroner's, the medical examiner's statement pinning the time of death being a few days before December 3rd. And now I believe your attorneys are asking for an independent medical examiner to come and review the time of death uh, for when they found them on December 3rd. So that, that one is huge, and that is certainly misconduct happening right there. What, so what are your thoughts on that or any... I, I totally agree with you. Um, that was, again, like I said, everybody, you got all these people who, one, like I said, spoke to Angela and the children. Um, after I'm gone from the state of Missouri now. I'm, I'm, I'm gone. I'm, and not only am I not in the city of St. Louis, I'm not even in the state. Yeah. So, of course, their testimony. Then when it comes to the medical examiner, um, the medical examiner, when he said he went into the house and he said when he first found Angela, he said that it looked as though she was sleeping. So he took her vitals. Now, if this was a woman who's been murdered two weeks prior to you finding her, you're not going to take no vital signs. You're not going to say, oh, it looked like she was sleeping, so I, I, I took her vitals and everything. And this was his testimony in, in his deposition and everything. When it gets to the uh, uh, pathologist, when he does his examination and does the autopsy and, and, and everything, he goes by what the medical examiner gives him. Based on that and what he sees in the, in the body and everything, he does a deposition two years prior to my trial. Two years prior to my trial, the, he, the pathologist himself, he says, yes, when I looked at the bodies and everything, um, I would determine, I would put the time of death at a day and a half to no more than five days. But I would say a day and a half to three days 
from the time they were found deceased that the murders occurred from a day and a half to no more in five days, but I would say a day and a half to three days. This was his testimony at deposition and everything, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, however, when we get to trial, oh, now all of a sudden it changes. The prosecutor gets, again, same thing. Well, I learned some information from the prosecutor. What information? You couldn't learn anything from the prosecutor that you didn't get from the investigator who was on the scene and gave it to you, and then from your experience. The investigator, Joseph Lev, they asked him how long had he been investigated. He said for 29 years. And this guy's been doing this for almost 30 years. So, of course, the information that he gave to the pathologist and the pathologist experience, Dr. Birch, his experience, you can't, the prosecutor can't tell you, uh, a time of death for this or, or give you any information that would make you change that other than they want you to be biased. They want you to uh, lie in court and change that so that they can get a conviction just based on the fact that they want me convicted. Yeah. They ain't look at no one else as, as possible suspects. You know, again, like I said, there's no motive or anything, but yet here, just, of course, they say, well, you know, when something like this happens, whether it be a man or woman, the husband or the boyfriend, or if it's a man that's found deceased, then it'll be the wife or a girlfriend, the first, you know, person that they suspect. But once you look at this and rule out that this person not even in the state of Missouri, then you need to go to the next person. You need to start now investigating to find out who actually committed these murders. Because now we know that the murder is still out there. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a huge part of it. I mean, they were so quick to pin it on you is that there is now potentially the murderers are still out there committing the same types of crime. And I think that we see this, you know, I would say we see this happen a bit, and I would say we especially see this happen in St. Louis County. Um, there's a lot going on at that time with the prosecutor, uh, Bob McCullough, in St. Louis County. Um, and I do want to talk about that, but very quickly, I want to um, circle back to the coerced confession of your brother, because we have this bias, we have this, what we believe is misconduct in the way they created the timeline and the way they were influencing witnesses, but the coerced confession, like the only only way they were able to arrest you and extradite you back to Missouri to even charge you with this crime. Can you just kind of briefly tell us uh, about your brother's experience, what happened to him? Yes, definitely. My brother, Perry Taylor, this was my older brother, good guy. Um, he was an over-the-road truck driver. Um, when they first found them in the house deceased, the sister, Jawan Rowe, told the police officers, says uh, the officer was uh, Officer Freddie Lee. He, he, came, he, he testified, he said he came out the house, he informed the family members that Angela and the children were in the house and they were deceased. Juwan wrote right off the flip. She said, where's her husband, Cass, Leonard Taylor? He should be in there, too. So... He said, who, who, who you tell us? I said, Leonard Taylor. It was a, now, we weren't married or anything, but we just called each other husband and wife, you know. But nevertheless, um, said he should be in there too. So they take my name down. That's, that's where my name gets put into the equation and everything. They take my name down. They start um, checking. They've seen different phone calls that were made to the house. Of everybody who may have called the house or even may have uh, uh, talked to them or who she have may, may have called, they've seen my brother's name on the, on the uh, phone uh, call ID. So 
They check with him. They find out that he's a, a truck driver. They call his company, Ganey. He's worked with Ganey um, Trucking Company. They asked where he was at. He was in Texas at the time. Um, they asked them to consult the authorities down there, have them hold him. They want to talk to him. So they fly down there, the Major K Squad fly down there. They tell them they find Angela and the children deceased. Um, ask them when it was the last time he had spoke with me. So I spoke with him on November the, um, 22nd, around the 22nd or something, right before Thanksgiving. I was asking him, you know, uh, what did him and Angela going to do? I might be through town around Thanksgiving, might stop in for dinner and so forth and so on. Okay, they asked, well, have you seen him? Say, no, I haven't, I haven't seen him. Say, well, we want to question him. Say, have you have you tried to come? They never tried to call me, mind you. Say, uh, no. So they let him go. Well, they tell him first, you know, they found him D.C. They asked him about it. He said, well, hey, look, he loved that woman and them children. I don't believe he did no, no crap like that. That's what you're trying to imply. And they said, well, we want to question his person, uh, person of interest. So... They let him go. He gets a couple of days go by. They pull him over in um, Jersey, I think, with New Jersey. Again, they take him out of his truck. They take him to the police station, question him and everything. Fine. No problem. Again, time, a day go by. He's coming through St. Louis, Missouri, in St. Louis County on 270. He's at a service station filling up his truck, delivering some goods. They jump down, they drag him out of his truck, drag him to the Jimmy police station, where he say they took him out back, they put guns in his mouth, they beat his body up, they told him that they believed that I committed these murders, they wanted him to make a tape saying that I called him on November the 22nd and said that Angelou and I got into a fight, an argument. She came at me, she stabbed me. I shot her because she stabbed me, yeah. and the kids witnessed this, so I murdered them. This was the narrative that they gave him to say. Yeah. They sat him down, and they videotaped this. They told him, we're here with Perry Taylor, brother of Leonard Taylor, and they tell him, say, you know the next word that come out of your mouth will determine the rest of your life. Wow. And they come in with this little narrative. Now, we only have just a couple him. minutes, Raheem, so I'm sorry I don't want to cut you off, but I did want to let our our listeners know too that um so they coerced the confession, but later on your brother recanted, right? He gave a deposition that he recanted that statement, right? He recanted that statement the moment he stepped out the police station okay. and to to family members friends and he did a deposition two years before telling how they beat him up, threatened to take his life, threatened to uh, make it well, find him on the road, dead in his truck, and all kinds of, even threatened our mother, threatened yeah. to kill our mother, all kinds of stuff that the police did. Wow. I was reading that, and uh, we actually, if you want more information, because we are running out of time, and this story is detailed and, and important, and you can find out more on www.madpmo.org if you want to learn more about the case. Um, you are listening to KKFI. I'm Elise Mack talking with Raheem Taylor. Uh, we are unfortunately out of time this morning. Raheem, I really appreciate you being with us. Um, thank you for staying positive. Yeah, go ahead. One last thing. One last thing. Yep. Now, 
This story about me being stabbed, when they locked me up, they took pictures of me, made me stripped down naked. I don't even have a scratch on my body nowhere. So we know that was a lie. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I hope that we will know soon enough that Wesley Bell's going to do the right thing and file this, uh, get filed in the courts. And we're going to remain hopeful and positive for you, Raheem, as you have been over your course of incarceration and and it's just very inspiring so um thank you so much uh, again for being with us and thank you yeah thank you for having me god bless you all and happy holiday to you all right you too thanks support for kkfi by the midwest trust center at johnson county community college The Midwest Trust Center at Johnson County Community College, formerly the Carlson Center, has been a venue for the performing arts and arts education since 1990 and, in support of KKFI, offers a full list of events and can accept donations at jccc.edu forward slash Midwest Trust Center. Every Tuesday from 6 to 6.30 p.m., Radioactive Magazine, a locally produced public affairs program, spotlights individuals and organizations in our community that deal with ideas and issues of social and political significance such as climate change, racial and gender inequality, pay inequity, and much, much more. That's Radioactive Magazine, Tuesdays, 6 to 6.30 p.m., right here on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Most times, KKFI moves against the stream, but just saying play KKFI to your smart speaker will bring our stream to you. KKFI, wherever you are. Now the calendar for the week of January 16th. The Missouri Chapter of Missouri Citizens United for the Rehabilitation of Errants, Missouri Cure, has a monthly virtual meeting. For information, call Keith Brownell at 816-377-2873. You can find Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense events at momsdemandaction.org. These are open to all, mothers and others. There's many events for Monday, January 16th, Martin Luther King Day, 8.30 a.m. to 5.30 p.m., Harvester's Martin Luther King Day of Service at 3801 Topping Avenue, Kansas City, Missouri. You must register for this event, so visit them at harvesters.org. 9 a.m. to 2 p.m., City of Kansas City, Missouri Day of Service will be at Central Middle School, 3611 Linwood Boulevard, Kansas City, Missouri. Other Martin Luther King Day events include Take a Walk at 9.30 a.m., begins at Martin Luther King Jr. Square Park. You can join the Heartland Conservation Alliance and KC Parks on a restorative walk along the banks of beautiful Brush Creek. The walk ends at Bruce R. Watkins Cultural Heritage Center, 3700 Dr. Martin Luther King Drive Boulevard. Refreshments will be served and a program will take place. Linwood YMCA Day of Service is 10 a.m. to 1 at 3800 East Linwood Boulevard, Kansas City, Missouri. Olathe Public Library Martin Luther King Day of Service is 10 to 4 at 1078A West 78th Street, Olathe, Kansas. There'll be family-friendly events all day. Reparations for Black Kansas City is at 430 at Metropolitan Missionary Baptist, 2310 East Linwood, Kansas City, Missouri. On Tuesday, January 17th at 9.30 a.m., celebrate Martin Luther King Day 2023 with the community at Mid-American Nazarene University, 2030 East College Way, Olathe, Kansas. 
Now, other weekly events. Tuesday, January 17th, 5 p.m., you can join others to learn about exciting plans for fighting the effects of overturning of Roe v. Wade in the state of Missouri. Brian Silver with Americans United for Separation of Church and State will provide a preview of an initiative that Pro-Choice Missouri and National Women's Law Center will be launching on January 19th. This will be at the Homesteader, 100 East 7th Street, Kansas City, Missouri. Please RSVP to Holly McKissick at yahoo.com. Tuesday, January 17th, 5 to 7 p.m., Survivors Will Heal. A support group for shooting survivors will meet at the Robert J. Mohart Multipurpose Center, 3200 Wayne Avenue, Kansas City, Missouri. For more information, contact 816-912-2601. Wednesday, January 18th, 9 a.m., the Greater Kansas City Coalition to End Homelessness will meet on Zoom. More info at gkcceh.org. Wednesday, January 18th at 1 p.m., Pro-Choice Missouri and National Women's Law Center will have another session, a second session, take your pick, on the effects of overturning Roe v. Wade in the state of Missouri. This one will be at Westport Presbyterian Church, 201 Westport Road, Kansas City, Missouri. Please RSVP to Holly McKissick at yahoo.com. And thank you for your commitment to reproductive justice. Wednesday, January 18th at 6.30 p.m., there's a film screening and discussion of Imagining the Indian, the Fight Against Native American Mascotting. This will be at the UMKC Pearson Auditorium, 5000 Holmes Street, Kansas City, Missouri. This is a free event and open to the public in collaboration with UMKC Masters of Social Work Student Organization and KCIC. More information at imagininthedianfilm.org. Thursday, January 19th, 5 to 7 p.m., KC Mothers in Charge Support Workshop Hope and Healing for Survivors of Homicide meets at 3200 Wayne Avenue, Kansas City, Missouri. RSVP to 816-912-2601. Friday, January 20th at 11 a.m., Empower Missouri's Community Justice Coalition meets on Zoom. More info at empowermissouri.org. A list of services, meals, and hotlines are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. Enjoy Martin Luther King Day. Martin Luther King said, People fail to get along because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they have not communicated with each other. Thanks to all our listeners. Stay close to your dial and stay well. Hello and welcome to the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. To commemorate the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr., we discuss Dr. King's life, his work, his legacy, and memory. We then explore the impact of Dr. King and his memory on contemporary issues, including the role of women on the movement and the security of people of color as embodied in the Black Lives Matter movement. What is the meaning of Dr. King's dream today? 
Doug Becker Explores. I'm Doug Becker. This week, we celebrate the legacy of Martin Luther King. We take time to consider the role he personally played in the civil rights movement, as well as explore the state of civil rights and Black activism in the United States and around the world. We will consider the memory of Dr. King and its impact on our understanding of the civil rights movement. We'll analyze the current state of civil rights movements and what Dr. King can teach us about their goals, tactics, and levels of success. And we'll examine the role of Dr. King's rhetoric and the value of the speeches that he's delivered in framing our understanding of what is civil rights and how do we achieve them. Our panel today is David Garrow. He's professor of history and law at the University of Pittsburgh and former senior research fellow at Cambridge University. And he's the author of Bearing the Cross, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Biography, among many other publications. Keith Miller is professor of English and affiliate faculty at the Center for the Study of Religion and Conflict at Arizona State University. He's the author of Voice of Deliverance, The Language of Martin Luther King Jr. and Its Sources. Jared Clements is postdoctoral research associate at Princeton University. He's the author of From Freedom Now to Black Lives Matter, Retrieving King and Randolph to Theorize Contemporary White Anti-Racism. And Dewey Clayton, professor of political science at the University of Louisville. He's the author of Black Lives Matter and the Civil Rights Movement, a comparative analysis of two social movements in the United States. Thank you all very much for joining us. David Garrell, we'll start with you. You've written this wonderful biography on Dr. King. So to start off, give us a bit of a background. We kind of know the story of King, but what does the sort of common narrative sometimes get wrong or get a little bit mistaken? The number one thing for people to understand about Dr. King was that he did not want to be in the public role that he ended up in. Um, he was drafted by his black community colleagues in Montgomery, Alabama in December of 1955 uh, to lead the, the new organization that was set up to support uh, the spontaneous Montgomery bus boycott. Um, and King felt, uh, you know, drafted, uh, dragooned even into that role. Um, he was relatively new in town, uh, quite young, uh, an independent figure, not tied up with some of the old rivalries within the black Montgomery community. Um, and he found being in the, the public spotlight very stressful. Um, he had a, a sort of faith experience uh, in early uh, 1956, um, what the late James Cone and myself and others have called the vision in the kitchen uh, of, of his parsonage, 309 South Jackson Street in Montgomery, uh, where King felt this sort of crisis of confidence uh, and understood God telling him that this was the role that was required of him, uh, even if he didn't want it, didn't like it. Um, and that deep ambivalence uh, about being a celebrated figure um, continued right on through uh, the entire balance of his life. Um, it's one of the great ironies of all the FBI wiretapping of King, uh, that one of the most powerful things we, we see from those wiretaps um, is King saying to his, his friends and advisors, 
uh, that, that he doesn't like all these honors, that he's getting too much credit. Um, so the, the, the private king was a very self-effacing uh, man, uh, someone who, who didn't enjoy getting too much credit, uh, didn't collect, you know, his press clips, uh, you know, when he's named time man of the year for 1963, he says something like, you know, what's one more award, uh, you know, to one of his advisors. Uh, and so there's a there's a fundamental humility to King. Um, and he's he's deeply self-critical uh, throughout all those years. Um, he finds the role very stressful, uh, increasingly stressful, the better known he becomes. Um, and with these awards, I mean, particularly when he receives the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, um, he feels that this excess of praise requires him to sacrifice himself even more. Um, and so he has a very consciously um, self-sacrificial uh, understanding of his role. Uh, when, he, when his popularity starts to drop, uh, particularly 1967, when he attacks U.S. involvement in the war in Vietnam, uh, he has a very conscious awareness um, that he's harming his own reputation uh, but his um, his need to say what he believes to be the truth, even if it's self-harming, uh, always wins out for him. Um, and so that self-sacrificial quality to, to King's life is, I think, the most important thing for, for people to grasp. And uh, Keith Miller, when we think of Dr. King, we think of first and foremost, incredibly eloquent framing of issues. We think of you know, his speeches and the words that he's delivered. How much should we view King as an orator, as somebody delivering these speeches? And how would you describe the sort of broad approach that he took to, to the speeches that he delivered? Well, King's process of composing sermons is very interesting. He followed the practice of other well-established preachers, African-American and white, and he borrowed very liberally from other preachers' sermons, many of which were in print. And even the conclusion of I Have a Dream, he borrowed from his friend, Archibald Carey from Chicago, who is an African-American minister. But he borrows sometimes the title of the sermon, sometimes the literary quotations, sometimes the illustrations. Some of his literary quotations are used, as I document, are used in many books of sermons by many different preachers. So part of the reason he did that was to try to package his racial protest in a kind of a homiletic structure that the northern liberal white audiences in the churches where he preached and at the church conventions the national church conventions where he preached, that they would find it acceptable because they're they're reading material that's familiar to them already. So he's not trying to be exactly original. He's, he's trying to reach the audience and persuade the audience. So I document how he does this and also how the other preachers also did that, including the ones who were considered very scholarly, such as George Buttrick, who edited this massive uh, multi-volume interpreter's Bible that was kind of on the, uh, on the shelves of every uh, liberal Protestant preacher in the country at the time. Um, so somehow he, he managed to, to use this material, but to transmute it, and it sounds more eloquent and more magnificent when he's using it 
than when other people did. And one thing interesting is that if you look at the scholarship on Shakespeare, Shakespeare composed in a somewhat analogous sort of a fashion. He uses all kinds of motifs from from uh, these earlier writers, Ovid and Seneca from classical Greece and Boccaccio and Chaucer and lots of different writers. Uh, he uses them in all kinds of ways and he always makes them sound better than what they started, how they started to sound. So the composing process is very interesting. And I think that people need to appreciate King in the context of uh, lots of other people. He also drew very heavily, as Gary Dorian explains in a recent book, from uh, an African-American social gospel tradition of Benjamin Mays, Mordecai Johnson, Howard Thurman. And in some ways, his father was part of that tradition. His father was a close friend of Benjamin Mays. Uh, so I think that I think that all that is important. And so we're getting a good picture of who King was, you know, as a person, as an orator, et cetera. I want to delve into some of the memory of King as well. I mean, he's he's both an individual, real person, but also as a reminder for the commemoration of his birthday, he's a symbol. He's a, the symbol of civil rights and the symbol of activism. And so uh, Dewey Clayton, I want to bring you in. I know you've written about sort of the comparisons of civil rights movement, Black Lives Matter. I guess to first delve into this is how much does King define the civil rights movement? How much when we think of civil rights, we should think of the person of King, or is that kind of simplifying or kind of flattening what the civil rights movement is? Well, I don't know. It depends. I would say, personally, I think that um, many people classify the civil rights movement as, as basically being king. And he clearly was a part of it, and he became largely a face of the civil rights movement. But it's wrong to, to basically center it with king. There were many people. Civil rights has been uh, going on in this country for a long time. And King certainly becomes the face of the civil rights movement. But one has to remember, he happened to be the right person at the right time. Uh, there had been civil rights movements going on prior to World War II in particular. Uh, you had the NAACP being founded uh, in 1909. You had many other organizations coming along. You had the uh, Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters with A. Philip Randolph. You had many others. Uh, and it seemed that some of that activism was put on hold, particularly during World War II. Coming out of World War II, uh, I think there was a renewed emphasis and Brown versus Board of Education in particular in 1954 uh, sort of opened the door uh, for this new type of activism. And as I said, King happened to be the right man uh, at the right place. 1955, he finds himself uh, in Montgomery uh, wanting to uh, establish his, his, his own church. He's 26 years old uh, and things just sort of move in that direction. And so he becomes uh, the face of the civil rights movement uh, uh, to, to a certain extent, but one must realize that uh, there were many other people involved as well. King just happened to sort of be the face of the movement. Uh, he was eloquent. Uh, the press became very enamored with him from the beginning. Uh, and uh, and so that helped greatly. But to just sort of limit it to King, uh, that I, I think that would be a, a real disservice. 
No, absolutely. And Jared Clevin, someone to bring you in now as well, because King's words and the imagery that King, you know, has presented has been used by so many different political actors across the political spectrum. How much is King, is the legacy of King, the language of King, et cetera, framing civil rights questions, particularly in, in contemporary America? So the first thing I would say and what I would suggest to everyone, your listeners, is that so much of King's writings and his speeches are easily accessible. So um, I think it's really good to go to the source and see for yourself um, exactly what he had to say about a number of issues. And it's also important to realize that King was a, a voracious reader um, and he changed his his views on things as his um, as you know, as he, as he aged. And so if we look at King in, let's say, 1959, that's going to be a much different king than the king we see in 1967. And so because of that, it's easy to, um, to let's say, uh, extract a quote from one year and then try to, you know, apply it to another era. But it's really important to think about the totality of, of what King was about. And I would say that from there, we can see that uh, one thing that kind of building upon David's point, one thing that struck that strikes or struck me about King in reading his um, his speeches, his written works and so forth is he had an immense amount of compassion. So um, for King, like it wasn't, although obviously he wanted to improve the plight of, of black people in America, for him, there was a, a, a human aspect to the way that he operated. And so um, I think it's just really important to not try to um, to parse like specific uh, sayings um, and try to apply that to, to contemporary times without thinking about like the broader context in which he was speaking. Um, and I think because King is such a colorful speaker and because he does have these kind of sweeping orations, it's really easy to like slice and dice these quotes and plop them on, an, on a Facebook message board or something without really thinking or reckoning with um, some of the deeper meanings of, of what he was uh, what he was about. And so um, in my own work, I try to think about um, both the context in which King was writing, because I think that's important, but also thinking about what about what he was saying then or in 1960 or 63 or 67 or whatever can be applied to perhaps some of my more contemporary understandings of racial justice um, today. So, And you're listening to Scholar Circle scholarcircle.org. I'm Doug Becker. We're discussing the person, the legacy, the impact of Dr. Martin Luther King on the civil rights movement, both in the 60s and in contemporary times. And our panel today is David Garrow of the University of Pittsburgh, Keith Miller of Arizona State University, Jared Clemens of Princeton University, and Dewey Clayton of the University of Louisville. David Garrow, one thing I really want to kind of drill down on a bit here is the importance of spirituality of you know of religion we have this image in contemporary politics of you know if you're christian you stand on one side of the of the ideological spectrum and if christianity isn't really driving your ideology you stand on the other side but but dr king was first and foremost a christian minister and exactly. what's the role of spirituality King's whole upbringing was in the world of the, of the black church, and, and Keith can speak to this at, at least as well as I can. Um, we have a new major forthcoming biography of, of, of King coming in May from my friend Jonathan I, E-I-G. Um, and, and John's uh, great achievement in this book is, is to really open up 
the first two decades of, of King's life, um, how, how deeply grounded he and his family were um, in Black Atlanta, in the churches of Black Atlanta. Um, and, and Dr. King should be thought of as, as first and foremost a product of the Black Baptist preaching tradition. I mean, Keith has written on this. My late friend Jim Cohn uh, very importantly influentially wrote on that. Um, and, and just to build on, on something Jared said a few moments ago, by far the best uh, king sources for people are his sermons, and particularly the sermons at Ebenezer once he moves back to Atlanta uh, in 1960. Um, there's a power and, and there's an intimacy uh, to his sermons uh, at Ebenezer uh, that we don't see in, in most of his other orations. Um, because when he's preaching at Ebenezer, virtually everyone in that congregation has known him since he was a toddler. Um, and it's, it's, to call it his home church is, is almost an understatement. Um, now, unfortunately, listening to those Ebenezer sermons on the web um, is a real challenge. Um, the King Papers project, project is sort of stuck in 1962 for a number of years. Um, and in all frankness, I would warn people away from King's published books uh, because they were composed by committee. Um, some of it's, you know, Andy Young, some of it's Bayard Rustin. Um, Why We Can't Wait is, a, is primarily a ghostwriter named Al Duckett, who also wrote a book for Jackie Robinson. Um, a lot of King's magazine articles similarly were the pro product of, of committee work. Now, that's not at all unusual for any public figure. Um, but when King was preaching, uh, almost always he's not reading from any text again keith can speak to this better than i can um you know he may go up there with an outline but many of these sermons he'd given a dozen times before and pieces move around new stories appear um but uh, you'll, you'll you'll be more emotionally moved by the sermons uh more so than when he's talking to a a civil rights rally. Keith Miller, I'll bring you in and get your thoughts as well. Yeah, I agree with everything that, uh, that David just said. I would like to, if it's okay, I'd like to go back to the question that you asked uh, Dr. Clayton about the memory of King. Absolutely. To me, there's basically four civil rights movements. The first one is what actually happened. The second one is what the reporters reported at the time. And the reporters were almost entirely male. So they followed, they decided leaders were, they assumed leaders were men. So they followed the men around, especially King, but also Megar Evers. And the third one is what the historians have done. So the historians in the last 20, 30 years have widened the lens. So that's why we haven't had a major biography of King in a very long time. The historians have been working on biographies of these important national, state, and local leaders, many of whom are women who are overlooked by reporters. So there are biographies of Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, Holly Murray, and so forth. So the historians have widened the lens from what the reporters have done, but this might be arguable, but to me, 
the national memory, the public memory has shrunk even and it's even more king centered than it was according to the reporters. And I think President Obama is partly responsible for that because when he talks about the he talks about the movement, he almost always talks about King. He usually talks about I have a dream and Selma. So there is a contrast between the historians trying to widen the lens and the national memory is more King centered, even though King was not involved in some of the important parts of the civil rights movement, such as the Little Rock Nine in 1957, such as James Meredith at Ole Miss in 1962. They were all big headline news stories and built momentum that, you know, eventually culminated in the major legislation in 1964, 1965, and 1968. So, I think that that's a discrepancy that people need to look at. And I think a lot of these women are very important. And also there's local male leaders like Fred Shuttlesworth who've gotten their biographies. So anyway, I just wanna, I just wanna say that. I think it's useful to think of that there are four, there are four movements. And Jared Clemens, I'll bring you in and get your thoughts as well. Yeah, so the Keith's point, and so one thing that I wanted to do in the paper that Doug mentioned when I was introduced was really try to offer a bit more historical context in which some of these popular speech quotes were taken from. So um, I think often about um, like the quote about the white moderate that you see just repeatedly thrown out in kind of in public discourse. And people take that as a way to, I guess, sow suspicion or, or question the intentions of individuals in a way that I don't necessarily think is, A, I don't think it, it comports with what King himself trying to, I think part of his compassion stemmed from wanting to build more solidarity, um, both across interracially, um, across, across class collaboration as well. Um, and I think that the way that um, some of the quotes are kind of, again, taken out of context, really do us a disservice for really trying to understand kind of the, the context in which um, King was was operating and kind of some of the um, some of the engagements that that he was partaking in. And so I just think it's it's really hard in our current culture because we do have this kind of Superman way of thinking about politics. It's that, you know, these big political events are kind of the result of one great person who just kind of <laughs> Uh, essentially is dropped from the sky and then saves the, the day essentially. But um, as everyone's kind of mentioned, that's just generally not the, well, not generally, that's not the way that that politics or any type of social activity um, works. And so I do think that I wish there were a way as somebody, I guess, who was a millennial. And I think about the way that our eco, our media ecosystem is structured like TikTok is much more amenable to this kind of quote that's divorced from any type of like social or political context as a way to generate impressions and to, to get people, I guess, interested in these figures, but without doing the work of actually thinking about the the history and, and the nuances of uh, of whatever the um, of whatever particular time that they're derived from. So I just wanted to to add that. And uh, Dewey Clayton, I think one of the challenges then is King is elevated to this heroic status. And then after he's killed, who's going to step into those hero shoes? And so what's the impact of the civil rights movement when you elevate King to this almost superhuman status compared to a lot of people who 
we might even call them the foot soldiers, but the people who are out there doing a lot of the uh, heavy lifting themselves. Well, I think you raise a good point because I wanted to go back, if I could, for just a second. In fact, it really is 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 right in line with what you actually have talked about. Um, you know, King gets credit for a lot that happened, but the civil rights movement became a movement because of ordinary people all across this country, particularly in the South. And these are the people who put their lives on the line every day. And, uh, you know, they were responsible for organizing, mobilizing. King would come in and do a lot of work and help with that. But as I said, these were ordinary people. And and also, I'd like to add, uh, young people infused a lot of energy and excitement in the movement, even when the movement was on the wane to a large extent in in the uh, late 1950s. uh, It was young people that that sort of picked up the the mantle uh, and carried it forward. They had the enthusiasm. uh, They had the idealism to, to want to make a difference in this country. And this was black and white young people, I'd like to say as well. These were college kids all around uh, the country. You had you had uh, white women at at, uh, 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 Vassar, uh, you know, mobilizing uh, and organizing and sitting in and lunch counters. So it it was an excitement that sort of spread. And King gets credit for a lot. But a lot of times King would sort of, uh, you know, pop in place somewhere. And sometimes uh, he actually was wanted. And other times some of the local people actually were not really pleased with that because the media would follow King wherever he went. And then when the media would leave, um, uh, or when King would leave, I should say, the media would leave as well. And that would make it difficult for many of those people to continue doing uh, what they were doing. But I think it's a real mistake just to sort of pin everything on, you know, with King. Certainly he was a good voice and he had a great message. Uh, And that message was actually a new message to a large extent because King spoke uh, with a new voice and a new message. And that message was one of nonviolence. There were African-Americans throughout this country who uh, were pressing for justice and and, and social justice and and rights, but many of them were not necessarily involved with, with, with the civil rights movement because they weren't necessarily in favor of uh, the tactics, those being nonviolence. They were they were not happy with what was going on. But that was something I, I think that is one important uh, addition that King added to this. He thought that that the way that you would gain uh, uh, supporters uh, and financial backers was, uh, like I said, it was it was nonviolent civil disobedience. And certainly King barred that from from the writings and teachings of Jesus, but also from Gandhi as well. Uh, and so I think that helped make a huge difference uh, equally. This is the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. We are commemorating Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday. Somewhere, somehow, well, maybe I'm not supposed to know. We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guest of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff, 
or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. You're listening to 90.1 FM KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio.